Today, if you've downloaded the digital bulletin or seen a printed bulletin, you may have noticed that it's World Mission Sunday. Our bishops provided us with a special collect, and they also gave us special scripture readings to use. But I looked at the scripture readings that we would ordinarily be using, and it seems like they fit World Mission Sunday better than the special ones the bishops picked out for us. So I figured we'd just keep going through Mark here, although I am kind of prejudiced because I like the gospel of Mark. Maybe 10 years ago, if you'd asked me what my favorite gospel was, I would say it's the gospel of John. But I've come over the years to appreciate Mark so much. Mark moves very quickly. His favorite word is immediately. It's like uh, reading a comic book. You get one scene, and then you get the next scene, then you get the next scene, then you get the next scene, very quickly moving through. But if you take time to look, you see there's a great deal of wealth here. I was privileged a few years ago, maybe five years ago, four years ago, to spend a couple of weeks in Israel. And I recommend that if you have that opportunity, you take it, and also that you just don't go with the first group that goes, but to investigate and find a good one. We had a good tour, tour guide, and it, one of his little shticks was he would, every time he went somewhere, he would tell us what percentage it was that he thought it was accurate of where we were going. And the problem with that is that in the fourth century, some Byzantines came down from Constantinople, and they had just become Christians, and they wanted to see where Jesus had grown up, and they were led by Constantine's mother and Helen, and, and they came down, and the Byzantines like got off the boat and went like, a, where's the Mount of Transfiguration? Well, there's a mountain. It looks kind of like sunshiny place. That's the Mount of Transfiguration. So they marked on the map, that's the Mount of Transfiguration. And so some places we would go, he would say, well, this probably isn't the place. But this is where a lot of holy people have come and it's worth going and experiencing what's become a holy place, even if it wasn't the real place. And and sometimes he would say, there's about maybe 60% that this is the path that Jesus would have used because just look, you know, would you have gone all the way over there or would you have gone down this way? And you think, well, okay, I guess that makes sense. And so he'd give us these percentages But one place that we went, he said, this is, I can tell you, the most positive place. This is, if nothing is 100% certain, it is more than 99% certain. And that's in the town of Capernaum. And it's Peter's house. And the reason why we can be so certain is that they're writing on the wall all the way from the first century and the second century, long before the Byzantines showed up and just started pointing fingers that says, this is Peter's house in a variety of ancient languages. It had, you can see, you can see where it is in Capernaum. You can go to Capernaum and see it. And you can see where the architecture was expanded of the building as more and more Christians began to come there and worship. And this is not a time when Christian sites in Israel were big tourist attractions. You don't put up big signs saying, hey, Roman army, all the Christians come around here. Nobody's making any money off of this, okay? People are risking all kinds of things by associating themselves with with a Christian holy site in the Roman Empire. And you can stand there and see the house. And it's, no kidding, it's maybe a good hard stone's throw from the synagogue. From Peter's house to the synagogue is about from where I'm standing to right outside the doors and maybe another 20 feet or so. The whole city of Capernaum could fit on the property that we share with the school here. It's a tiny place. You can walk down the alley from where Peter House is to the main road and look down. You can see the Sea of Galilee two and a half blocks away. 
And I don't tell you that to brag about how I got to go to Israel. I'm telling you that to say that if you have, even if you can find pictures of Capernaum, take a look at them this afternoon because we're talking about a real place. This is a story that happens in a particular place, in a particular time, and it's a real place and real historical time with real people. Well, as I said earlier, Mark moves quickly, but there's so much detail embedded in the Gospels. In just one sentence, we, we see the Jewishness of the town. We see what, what, what the culture these people are living in. They leave the synagogue and they go to Simon Peter's house. Why do they go to Simon Peter's house? Why do they leave the synagogue and go to a house? Why don't they go fishing? Why don't they go walking through the marketplace? Why? Because it's the Sabbath. And that, and that sentence were placed right on the day of a week in a little Jewish town. Why is it after Peter's mother-in-law is healed that the other people in town who are desperate for healing wait until sundown before they come to Peter's house? Because it's the Sabbath. They have to stay home and rest. In just a few little words, we get a picture of this very particular place and time, a real place and real historical time with real people. And it's on a particularly busy day for Jesus. There's a lot of pressure on Jesus, a unique pressure. I don't think anyone ever experienced more pressure from his job than Jesus Christ. And I know that you face all kinds of stress in your life and in your jobs and in your family lives and in your careers. I don't say that lightly when I say that I think, don't think anyone ever experienced more stress than Jesus Christ. I don't say that lightly. One in four working Americans at any given time report that they're either situationally depressed or intensely anxious about their work, about their job. And that was before the pandemic. We read last week that Jesus had taught at the synagogue and he was interrupted by a demon-possessed man. This, by the way, is a part of the story that's comforting to me. You may remember from last week that the oppressed man had stood up in the middle of the synagogue service and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. You may remember that from last week's reading. Well, check out this morning's reading. What do we see? That Jesus has learned. He learns he needs to tell the evil spirits to be silent. You'll notice in this passage that Jesus has learned from experience. And he begins to tell the demons to be silent. And that's comforting to me. Because if Jesus had to learn on the job, I guess it's okay for me to have to learn on the job too. It's okay for me to experience something and say, next time I'm going to do that different. We're not talking about committing a sin, right? We're talking about learning. We're talking about ministry learning and saying, next time I do this, I'm going to make sure to tell those demons to be quiet. I guess it's okay for me to learn on the job too. Well, Jesus and Peter go to Peter's home. Why? Again, it's on the Sabbath. And they go to rest. But Peter's mother-in-law is sick. She has a fever, which implies some kind of infection that gives her a fever. Now today, a fever is not really a big deal. Infections aren't really a big deal. I mean, I know I'm saying this in the middle of a pandemic and we do have a problem, but for the, in general, um, you know, fevers and infections are not a big deal. You get a fever, you get a little cough, you go to the doctor, the doctor says, yeah, that looks like a bacterial infection, here's some antibiotics, and it's not a big deal. 
but it wasn't all that long ago that infections and fevers were very big deals. In the 1920s, Calvin Coolidge's son, the son of the president, was playing uh, tennis at the White House, the tennis court, got a blister on his foot in his tennis shoes. The blister got infected and he died a week later. The president of the United States' son at the White House and there's no treatment for it, none at all. Penicillin wasn't used to treat a disease in a clinical study until 1942. That wasn't that long ago. My mother was born in 1942. It's only within my mother's lifetime that fevers and infections have become, for the most part, not such a big deal. And in fact, some have noted the, the, the story here. In Mark's gospel, this is the first healing. It's the first time in Mark's gospel that Jesus demonstrates the ability to heal. He's not done this before. There's been no mention of it before. And as we read the verse for the first time, we might think that they tell Jesus immediately that the mother-in-law has an infection because they want him to heal the mother-in-law. But we don't know that that the people who tell him this have any idea that Jesus can heal. It's entirely possible they told him right away, immediately. Peter's mother-in-law has an infection. She has a fever because they were warning him against coming inside and catching the illness. It's certainly possible. And it certainly is a reminder of the seriousness of fevers and infections in the ancient world, in fact, until recently. But either way, he takes her by the hand, he helps her to stand up, and she is healed. Isn't that amazing? There's no drum roll. Jesus doesn't say, and now for my next trick, I'll heal this fevered woman. He simply, lovingly, takes her by the hand, he touches an infected person, he takes her by the hand, he helps her stand up, and she's healed, and she serves. A word spreads quickly in a small town, and at sundown, because of the Sabbath again, all the town comes to the door. And again, if you can picture a town no bigger than the property that these buildings around here sit on, you can see all the town coming to the door. Can you imagine a whole bunch of people in front of your house, bigger than any Christmas carolers group ever was? All the city crowds at the door. Can you picture it? Because this isn't unusual. In the next chapter, uh, some friends are going to have to tear off a roof to get down to Jesus because the crowd is crowded in at the doorway. Well, here in this reading, they've brought both those who need physical healing and those under demonic oppression And I suppose well into the night, Jesus heals them. It's been a long day. Jesus begins by preaching in the synagogue. Now me, I'm exhausted just by preaching. Do you have a song that when you hear it just irritates you? I have a few of those. One of those is what was a hit by the Commodores, Easy Like a Sunday Morning. What? What in the world is easy about a Sunday morning? David was this morning easy. See, I just don't get it. I'm exhausted just by preaching. And I've never had a deal with a demon-possessed man crying out against me in the middle of the sermon. To be honest, I hope I never do. Especially this morning. 
and then to go to a friend's home and, and, and discover that the, the home is in a panic because there's an infection inside the home. There's a, a fevered woman inside the home. And for Jesus to step out in faith to heal her and then with maybe a little rest and then to deal with an entire town's sick and troubled population. And then, and this is what I've been building up to, after this busy day and working late into the night, to get up early the next morning to go away by himself to pray. Now, the going away part I get because I'm an introvert. It's also a comfort to me to see the times that Jesus has to go away from the crowd and recover because I can identify with Jesus here. But not only am I comforted, I'm also convicted every time I read of Jesus going away to pray. He always seems so busy, doesn't he? But he always finds time to pray. And I'm not half as busy as Jesus, and I don't find time to pray. I love the old hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer, that we sang during the prelude, but I always have to feel like a big hypocrite singing it. Maybe six, maybe um, sweet five minutes of prayer. I can manage that, but a sweet hour of prayer. But Jesus goes out before sunrise and prays. He must be praying a long time because Peter and the rest wake up and see that Jesus isn't there, come looking for him and find him. As busy as Jesus is, he finds time to pray. And this is Jesus. You'd think that someone like Jesus could take a day off every now and then from the praying thing. In fact, he's praying a whole lot more than I do. But this is not primarily about my prayer life, but about Jesus. There's a great deal of pressure on him. Emotional pressure, spiritual pressure, time pressure. But he takes time to seek guidance from his father. He decides it's even worth losing sleep over after a busy day. And in prayer, Jesus finds his priorities because Peter and the others finally find him. And Simon, that's Peter, and Simon Peter and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. The Greek word there is hunting for you like there's a desperation. Everybody is struggling to find you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Again, in two sentences, do you see the struggle here? Jesus' friends come to him and say, there are people back in that town who are desperate for you. They've brought more sick people for you to heal. And Jesus has to say, but I've got to move on. We've got to move on. I must preach the gospel because that's why I came out. That's why I came out of the town, so I could escape the people looking for me because I need to move on and preach the gospel. In prayer, Jesus found his priority. The agenda is set by his father. He can't be guided by the crowd, but notice that he also can't be guided by doing good. To go back to Capernaum and to heal more people would have been a good thing. Undoubtedly a good thing. What if he had gone back to Capernaum? Maybe he set up a healing center. What if all of Israel, all the way down to Egypt and Ethiopia, all the way up to Asia Minor where Turkey is today, all the way over to Babylon, let's just say, had come to Capernaum to be healed? And for three years, 
Jesus does nothing but work through the healing center. Until over that huge amount of territory, there are practically no ill or demon-oppressed people. They'd all made the trip to Jesus. And they'd all been healed. And that makes the Romans grow suspicious of him. And they put him on trial and crucify him and execute him. But what then? Jesus would have been an interesting footnote to history. A a great healer connected to a time when over a large amount of territory, nobody much got sick, or, or if they did get sick, they got healed. That would have been a good and a great thing. Nobody can deny that. But he changed the world, permanently changed the world. He changed the world by preaching the gospel. And he makes a difficult choice even of walking away from sick people, desperate sick people, It's a difficult choice. Jesus taught us to teach your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And in his ministry, he must take his agenda from his father. That yes, the kingdom must come on earth, but it's also a heavenly kingdom. You may have heard the expression, some people are too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. In other words, thinking so much about religious stuff, they never do any earthly good. Other people so earthly-minded, they never do any heavenly good. People so distracted by things around them. But Jesus has to walk that difficult line between being earthly-minded and heavenly-minded. And Jesus is called to live in the balance. But just like Paul in our Corinthians reading, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. The gospel must be preached. That's what Jesus said. I came out because I must go and preach. We all face tough choices in our individual lives, in in our working lives, in our church life. And I have two questions for you. What good things, not bad things, what good things, what good things may we be called to lay aside for the sake of the gospel? And the second question, what good thing do we do that keeps us from doing the best thing? Those are tough questions. Not talking about bad things, but good things. What good thing should I set aside so I can do the best thing? And how can you know? How do you decide whether to do the good thing or to do the best thing? Well, to do it the same way Jesus did by pouring out his heart in prayer to his father, letting his father set his agenda. Let's take as our challenge this morning to prayerfully consider these two questions. What good things may may we well be called to lay aside for the sake of the gospel? What good thing do we do that keeps us from doing the best thing? In Jesus' name, amen.